so, Mark. Yes? Once again, a Merry Christmas to you. Merry, Merry Christmas. It is coming up fast. Fast approaching this Christmas this year. Yes, and so we are continuing our look at movies that are technically Christmas movies. Although this is a little more Christmassy than some of them. It is, and it's not. Like, it's not a Christmas movie. You would never confuse this for a Christmas movie. But it is meaningfully set at Christmas for a while. It's not like, like, Meet Me in St. Louis, I think you could make an argument, is a Christmas movie. And that's just, like, the last chunk of it. Or, like, Three Days of the Condor was entirely set around Christmas but didn't really feel like it. Like, this has a feeling of Christmas when that's going on, but it's almost, if it's any holiday, it's a New Year's movie. Yeah, uh, I would think of this, I don't know, it's, I feel like the climax is always, you know, the moment. I guess it's not the climax, it's more of the resolution that happens at New Year's. It is very much a holiday season movie. Yeah, late December. Yeah, because it could be, it could very easily fall into either, and I don't think you could remove the holidays from this, but I think it also, you have to, you can't, remove the New Year's element and just make it a Christmas movie. Right. You're right that it is absolutely a December holidays movie. But, you know, we've discussed whether it's a Christmas movie, whether it's a New Year's movie. I'm going to I'm gonna offer a third alternative. Okay. Which is, this is a week between Christmas and New Year's movie. It's about that weird, strange period between two holidays where you're like, Okay, is this real life right now? Should I be doing things? Should I not? Like, how much does this count? Oh, that's a that's a really good description. Because, like, that's the vibe of the whole movie and of all the relationships in it. Yeah, the whole country is operating at, like, half capacity at most. So I, th- I think that's what it is. Wow. What a good choice. Like, what a good time to set this movie. Yeah. It captures the, you know, influx nature of the world and this movie. It's like the fifth day of Christmas. Huh. I really liked this movie. It rules. Uh, The movie's called The Apartment. And so, Mark, in the spirit of it, I was wondering, what are your favorite movie apartments? Okay, well, it's not a movie, but I have to shout out the best apartment in media, Frasier Crane's apartment from the hit sitcom (laughs) Frasier. Sure. Because it is massive. It's open. It has, like, a semi-sunken living room. A conversation pit is one of my dream house features at this point. I was about to make that joke. And, you know, a nice view. Obviously, the kitchen is dated to us now looking back, but I assume it was modern and up to date at the time. Well, he's a classy guy. He's a classy guy. He likes to cook. So that's probably number one. I assume you are eagerly awaiting the Frasier reboot series on Paramount+. Plus. I am dreading the Frasier reboot series because Kelsey Grammer has gone even crazier since the 90s. You know, he is in a movie coming up. He is? Is it some weird, like, right-wing Christian movie or something? (laughs) Yes, it is. It's called, uh, it's called Jesus Revolution. Yikes. And it is about a, like, pastor played by Kelsey Grammer who decides to welcome hippies into his church in, like, the late 60s or early 70s. And it, like, causes all the scandal in the community. But really, when you think about it, the Christians should be welcoming to the hippies, and maybe they can learn a thing or two from them as well while saving their souls. That's odd. (laughs) I saw this trailer when I saw Ticket to Paradise, the Mm. George Clooney, Julia Roberts movie. It was, like, opening day of Ticket to Paradise. This trailer had just come out, and... My wife and I were sitting watching it, and 
for some reason, when the Lionsgate logo came on the screen, I made a joke like, this is going to be a Christian movie. And then we spent the entire trailer not quite sure if it was a Christian movie or just a historical drama about a pastor. And then just gradually it became more and more clear. By the way, I tweeted a joke about this, and one of the stars of the movie replied to my tweet. Not Kelsey Grammer, unfortunately. But replied to my tweet about, like, is it a Christian movie or just a normal historical drama? And she was like, I like to think it's a little bit of both. Ew. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so if you want to see Kelsey Grammer as a, as a pro-hippie pastor, you can do that next spring. Okay. Well, I will not be watching that, and I know you will be. So let me know how it is. Yeah, we'll see. Look, it depends on whether it opens against Aquaman 2, because obviously I'll be at Aquaman 2. I mean, I will want to see Aquaman 2, depending on... I will give it reviews. I am no, I, I no longer have any faith in seeing a comic book movie, to be honest. Whereas I saw Black Adam, so Aquaman 2 looking pretty good to me. Yeah, and that was not good from my understanding. No, I tell you what, there were multiple scenes where I found myself enjoying it. Everything I'm about to say is true. I found myself digging what I was getting from, like, Pierce Brosnan and Aldous Hodge, two hot guys working together, you know. And genuinely, there were moments in that movie where it cut back to The Rock, and I said aloud, oh right, Black Adam is in this. <laughs> that is so funny. Um, it's not a good movie. No. But what is a good apartment, Will? <laughs> okay, so number one, I gotta stand up for my girl. You know who's got a great apartment is Midge. Midge has a great apartment. Oh, I forgot. My longtime girlfriend, Midge from Vertigo, has just a very cool apartment with huge windows and space for her fashion design studio, basically. It's very kind of open concept, but cozy as well. Yeah. I mean, if I remember correctly, it has a nice view also. Yeah. How does she afford that apartment? I guess San Francisco housing was different back yonder. And didn't she, like, invent the bra? No, but she did revolutionize it. Yeah. Midge is, like, a genius. Based on the quality of her apartment, I would say she must have revolutionized it. Um, other cool apartments, Sigourney Weaver in Ghostbusters. Good apartment. Oh, Nick and Nora in The Thin Man. Good apartment. I mean, that's a great apartment. <laughs> that's, that's the thing. When you start thinking about, like, what are the great apartments, you quickly fall into, like, gorgeous five-room New York flats, like yeah. <laughs> like Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman in Eyes Wide Shut. And you're like, I guess technically an apartment, but more of a yes. house? Massive pre-war apartments in New York owned by the uber-wealthy. Those are nice apartments. Anthony Hopkins has a good apartment in The Father. And that's the thing where, like, you know, you're talking pre-war. Like, even in this movie, the titular apartment, pretty nice. I mean... It's so funny that this apartment is supposed to be considered kind of dumpy because it would sell for conservatively like three million today. Right. But it's like because he has neighbors, he doesn't even have the whole floor. They're like, oh, my gosh, you're in a matchstick. The brownstone seems to be a TARDIS situation. I gotta say, (laughs) unless they have knocked down walls between multiple brownstones, there's no way that many apartments fit inside. You know, New York real estate, they can do anything. But of course, the thing they would typically do is not give you a bathroom, and he has a full bathroom. Right. I was just very confused by the layout of this building. I mean, obviously, it's because it's a set versus an establishing shot, but I think they could have done a bit better with matching those up. But, like, what I appreciate about all of the apartments that we've listed is, like, there is a coziness. Like, I looked up a list of great movie apartments before doing this, and, like, one of them on it is 
Bruce Wayne's apartment in the Dark Knight. And it's like, that's a fancy apartment, but it's all, like, very clinical. Yeah, I mean, that's like, I mean, I haven't seen the movie, but that's like saying um, Patrick Bateman's apartment in... um, In American Psycho? American Psycho. Yeah, it made (laughs) this list. I could not think of that for a second. Oh, but that's like, the point is that it's nice but bad. Yeah, well, Christian Grey's apartment also made the list, and I'm skeptical of that. Yeah. You know who's got a good apartment is Wally. Wally's got a nice, cozy little place. Oh, Wally's little house is very sweet. Yeah, but I think that qualifies more as an apartment than a house. Yes, I mean, it's more of a room than an apartment. It's a studio. studio. Yeah, he's got a TV, which is what's important to me. Uh, Will, if that's your bar, I have some good news for you. (laughs) There are many apartments. Any other apartments you want to shout out before we dive in? Um, feel like we hit the big ones, right? If we have forgotten any major ones, uh, you should tweet them at us. Please do with the hashtag ApartMe, because you have an apartment to share with us. So that's hashtag ApartMe on Twitter if it still exists when this episode comes out. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, good caveat. <laughs> to tell us what other great movie apartments we've forgotten. And if not on Twitter, I guess reach out to us on uh, whatever's filled the void. Maybe Tumblr. (laughs) Maybe we're going back. Are we going to have to start a show Tumblr, Will? I hope not. Oh, man. I I just, like, never properly learned Tumblr, and I feel too old now to start. Yeah, I don't know. It's a a separate world. Yeah, I just, I can't do that at this point in my life. But speaking of separate worlds, I think we should go take a trip to 1960 New York in this episode of We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark and I'm gay. And I'm Will and I'm a ginger. This is an investigative podcast dedicated to really uh, taking a look at at the loves of the holiday season (laughs) and asking ourselves the least important questions. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And... Does anyone actually work in an office like this, or was this an exaggeration? Also, are these people actually dateable or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We will dig in and see what's there. And this week, as we have said repeatedly, we are taking a look at the romance of Billy Wilder's 1960 Best Picture winner, The Apartment. Had you seen this movie before? I had not. I uh, just picked up the 4K disc from Kino Lorber and popped it on about three hours ago. And it's great. I like had no idea this movie existed before you put it on the schedule. And then I was like looking into it and I was like, this movie won Best Picture. It's on the AFI's Top 100 list. It's like in the Library of Congress. How have I never heard of it? Yeah, it's a movie I knew of. It's been on our long list to do for a long time. And I seized on it when we did our alternate Christmas plan so that you would not have to watch the Lindsay Lohan Netflix movie. Thank God. And, yeah, I'm so glad that we pulled the trigger on it, because this thing is great, and I'll watch it a bunch more. Yeah, it's really um, lighter on the comedy than I thought it would be. I mean, I thought it was pretty funny. It is very funny, but it loses the comedic elements, I would say, fairly early, and then kind of sprinkles them throughout the rest. Yeah, it's almost more in just, like, a stray line. You know, I almost wish they didn't bring it back a second time, because it's so funny how wanly he says it but that's the way it crumbles cookie wise it's just a hysterical thing to say oh it's so good that's probably my favorite line in the movie so like i think in the first half there are basically outright jokes and then it just becomes like 
odd things that people say in a way that feels real, where you're like, yeah, sometimes in awkward situations, I do say things that don't make any sense. Yeah, and this man doesn't make a lot of sense to begin with. He, I don't know if a character has ever depressed me as much as this man. (laughs) It's funny, because Jack Lemmon is such a cutie pie in this movie, but also, like, two-thirds of the way through, I was like, he kind of stinks. Yeah, I mean, he's not a good person. He lives the most depressing life you could imagine. He's willing to do horrible things to skip ahead of more deserving people to the executive level. Right. It's funny the way that he is introduced in the opening sort of voiceover, where he talks about how, like, sometimes he stays and works late. And you just kind of internalize that of, like, even when you realize people are using the apartment, you're like, the guy stays hours late. like. So whether he's chosen it or not, he has become a very good worker who's, like, getting a lot done. And then just gradually over the course of the movie, you're like, you know, you never see him do anything except negotiate who is using his apartment. Like, he gets promoted and you always see him sitting at an empty desk. Right. It's just, what does he do? How are these people cheating on their wives so frequently that I... the. The logistics baffles me. The demand for the apartment is unreasonably high. (laughs) It's so funny. Just the whole thing of, like, the first time somebody calls him up in the middle of the night and you're like, oh, this has now expanded to a second person who's going to be using the apartment to conduct affairs. And then the next day, when you realize that he has a schedule and has to juggle four different dudes. Yeah, and it's like when he has to rearrange, he has to, like, ask three other people to rearrange their dates. And these entitled assholes are so evil because they treat him like such shit and have no sympathy as well as cheating on their wives. This movie is full of the worst people. And yet I loved it. It's so fun. And I mean, that's the Billy Wilder of it, right? Yeah. It's so infuriating to watch. And I also was so confused why he didn't just go to, like, a neighborhood diner or a bar when he was kept out of his apartment by people. He just stood outside in the rain. And I'm like, dude, just, like... Go somewhere else. Why are you just standing in the rain? This is New York City in 1960. There are like 24-hour movie theaters. Yet there is something to escape the rain. And yet he just chooses, as always, to make the most depressing choice possible. The most pathetic option. This is a bit of a Manic Pixie Dream Girl deconstruction movie pretty early, too, in a way. Because she also, she starts out seeming like, you know, the fun, goofy one, but she also makes only terrible choices. Yeah, she starts off as the quirky elevator operator, doing things you could see Kirsten Dunst doing in Elizabethtown, <laughs> the way she's flourishing her button pressing. Right. But yeah, I mean, she's kind of a a sad character too, and not in a twee way. Every character in this movie is in need of an SSRI. The sort of the resolutely good character is the neighbor, Dr. Dreyfus, who has a satisfying life. He has a wife that he loves. He has friends who will come over and have a party with him. Right. He is the only good man in the movie, which the movie also acknowledges, 
when he like quotes the doctor at the end. You gotta be a mensch. Oh my god, this movie is I read the one sentence summary of the plot on Wikipedia and I was just like, this movie can't be this explicit for nineteen sixty, but it really is. Oh, like, yeah. It and is it, was, it was controversial for it. Yeah. yeah. It must... I could... Like, it had to have been. This movie is very frank in its depiction of adultery and, uh, like, just sex. Yeah. So, like, the, the one-sentence premise of The Apartment is that Jack Lemon works at an insurance company. He lives in an apartment, as one does. But he loans out use of his apartment to, like, mid-level executives at the company so that they can go and conduct affairs there. And in exchange, they'll give him good performance reviews and stuff like that. And so this movie is all about adultery. It's all about people scheming to have sex outside of marriage. It's all about, like, the neighbors making comments about, like, wow, you're really uh, going all night? You got somebody there every week? Like, they don't say the word sex or anything ever, but they talk a lot about frequent vigorous adultery. Right. And it's very clear that they want you to realize that these people are having sex. Oh, yeah. Fred McMurray, who played Sheldrake, sort of the the uber adulterer, very much had a reputation before this for playing, like, very nice, upstanding, gentlemanly folks. And he'd tell stories about, like, women yelling at him in the street for making a dirty movie. I mean, he is the most despicable of them all. Yeah. But that's, like, even if you look at the reviews for this, they're generally positive. People are like, wow, this is a great movie. But there are also reviews that are like, this is filth and should not have been allowed on our screens. I'm a bit surprised it was allowed on screens. Yeah, and of course, um, Wilder's last movie was Some Like It Hot, which did not get approved by the production code, but went into theaters anyway and was a huge hit. Good movie. So I didn't find anything that said this movie wasn't given a code stamp, but again, he'd already played a role in weakening that. Right. I feel like it would have been mentioned if... It hadn't been given a code stamp. Right, exactly. Like, that would just show up on the Wikipedia page. <laughs> right. <laughs> or, in, I've also got, you know, I've told you this. I, uh, for my birthday, my mom got me a copy of Inside Oscar, which is the big book of, like, Oscar campaign gossip from the mm-hmm. 30s through the 80s, which is a real good time. For every year, they've got all the Oscar gossip. That sounds interesting. Yeah, it hasn't been printed since, like, the 80s, so you have to buy it used. But, yeah. good time. So... We've been talking about this. This is, of course, Billy Wilder again, who already had three Oscars by this point for The Lost Weekend and for Sunset Boulevard. He was just coming off of Some Like It Hot, which he co-wrote with I.A.L. Diamond, who also co-wrote this movie. Jack Lemmon was also a star in that, and this movie came about in large part because Wilder and Diamond wanted to make another Jack Lemmon movie. The movie itself was based, or not based, but inspired by a David Lean movie, Brief Encounter, and also, more interestingly, by a Hollywood scandal in the 1940s, oh. where a producer named Walter Wanger shot an agent named Jennings Lang because Lang was having an affair with Wanger's wife. And in the process, the connection to this is that Lang had been using a low-level employee's apartment to conduct his affair. Mm-hmm. The crazy thing is that Wanger, at the time, wasn't even sure that the guy was having an affair with his wife. Oh my god. He just was always kind of suspicious because his wife was like a hot actress. He was, like, suspicious of all men that they might be trying to sleep with his wife. And so one day, he's, like, leaving work, and he sees his wife's car parked in the lot, and he just chilled to wait. And, like, a half hour later, she came back with Jennings Lang in the car. They get out. She gets in her car. 
Lang leans through the window to talk to her some more. At which point, Walter Wanger gets out of the car with a gun and shoots the guy in the leg. Oh my god. Just on, like, suspicion there. Gross. Lang was fine. Wanger did four months in prison because he got his sentence reduced due to temporary insanity. Oh my god. Uh, This is so much more dramatic than the movie, and I thought the movie was dramatic. You can't beat life, Mark. No. In the immortal title of that weird Will Ferrell movie, Truth is Stranger Stranger than than Fiction. fiction. So yeah, so we've got Wilder, we've got Diamond, we've got Jack Lemmon, and then the other big piece of this movie is Shirley MacLaine. Of course. Who I, for Halloween this year, which as of recording was not that long ago, I dressed as Weezer, another classic Shirley MacLaine character from the hit film Steel Magnolias. I thought you were going as Shirley MacLaine from Valentine's Day, Uh, wife of Hector Elizondo. Absolutely not. Thank you for reminding me we watched that movie. I didn't really need the reminder. My God. Are we going to do another one of those movies? I can't remember if we put it on the... We Calendar. should. Um, I've seen New Year's Eve. I have not seen Mother's Day. Well, thank God we have New Year's Eve covered. <laughs> <laughs> One day we'll come back to, to Gary Marshall's holiday movies. Ugh, we will see. <laughs> Shirley MacLaine is pretty early in her career. She got her start on Broadway in the 1950s. And in, in this, she gets an Oscar nomination. She's great. She's cute. She's a lot of fun. She's Warren Beatty's sister, right? Yes, indeed. My God. They grew up just across the river in Arlington. Did they really? I had no idea. Yeah, uh, they went to Washington and Lee. Huh, that's cool. It's Washington Lee and Lee College, right? High school. High school, okay. Isn't there a Washington and Lee College or something? What's that called? Yes, there is. I think it, I think it is also Washington and Lee, yeah. Okay, because that's the college where my mom, who went to a women's college, would truck in boys. Oh, okay. For, like, events. <laughs> That's why it sounded familiar. The high school has since changed the Lee in its name to Liberty, and the college has not. Yes. Okay. Well, good for them. But yeah, Shirley MacLaine, she, she's great in this. She's I mean, she's so always winsome. great. She handles the switch in mood well. Yes. It's funny to watch this. Have you ever seen Sweet Charity? I have not yet. I know I need to. As a lover of Shirley MacLaine, you should watch it. But it's funny because like that is also a movie just about a woman who has like the most ridiculous bad luck in love. Like, it starts with her being pushed off a bridge in Central Park by her boyfriend, who then steals her purse. Oh my god. And, like, there's a great sequence where she, like, gets picked up by Ricardo Montalban at a club and goes home with him, and then another woman shows up, so he's like, ah, I need you to hide. And she just, like, has to hide in a closet for the whole night while he makes out with this lady, and she's thrilled by it. She's like, oh my gosh, I'm in Ricardo Montalban's house. Oh my god. I really, I gotta watch it. So it was funny to watch this as, like, kind of more of the bummer version of that character. Yeah, because she is a bummer. Yeah, she is. She seems like a good time, but her life seems kind of stinky. Yeah. I wish that she made better choices. (laughs) You should write her a letter. But the acting choices were very good and i really i mean like i was saying before she handles the switch from being just the chipper elevator girl to the woman at that dinner really well where it almost switches from seeing her like she's the same person but it almost is like you're seeing her behave as jack lemon sees her 
when she's like running the elevator but then when you go to the dinner where she's on her own it is like she is a different person almost yeah i think that's because a good way of thinking it's about no it. longer being seen through his lens and what's striking then is once you have those two visions when she is recuperating in his apartment he's still not seeing that other version of her for a long time yeah and the they clash yeah uh, both of them get Oscar nominations for this. Jack Lemmon loses to Burt Lancaster for Elmore Gantry. Shirley MacLaine loses to Elizabeth Taylor for Butterfield 8. Jack Crucian, who plays Dr. Dreyfus, also gets a supporting actor nomination for this, which he loses to Peter Ustinov in Spartacus, which is just kind of like another fun guy on the side role. I am interested in that nomination. Like, I'm curious. I haven't seen a ton of movies from that year, so I don't know what else there is, but it really isn't like the biggest role. Yeah, it's, it's kind of cool that that's a nomination. It feels like Fred McMurray would be the obvious supporting actor nomination from this. Yeah. All I know about Spartacus is I watched about half of it at a gay bar in London when it was just on TV and I was distracted from my friends. I mean, that's not a terrible place to watch it. Spartacus is all right. I, I got the vibe that it was fine. It's like not, it's not a bad time. It's, it's probably like better than you expect it to be. Yeah. I'm sure it's better than, you know, you get from just reading the subtitles in a gay bar. In a basement. <laughs> that, is, that is probably true. Because at the very least there, you don't get all the fun Peter Ustinov stuff. Right. Why they were showing Spartacus? Unsure. But shout out Tony to Curtis. the Friendly Society. It's because Tony Curtis. I mean, the range of things you see on TVs at gay bars goes anywhere from apparently classic movies to hardcore pornography. And this bar was on the tame side. I mean, it, it is a thing of like, in Clueless... The evidence the movie gives you that Cher's boyfriend is gay is that he's really into watching Spartacus. Oh my god, I forgot about that. <laughs> that yeah. is true. And Tony Curtis is very pretty in it. And, uh, uh yeah, you know, in the in the remastered version, they they restored some scenes that also are are interesting but, but less fun. Like, kind of implying some homosexuality with some of the bad guys, which is a tired trope. But it's like, it's interesting how it's framed in the movie. Yeah, it's not my number one of his movies that I feel the need to see, but I do want to go see it. <laughs> sure, yeah, it, it's not The Shining. I mean, I have seen The Shining, at least. We did it on this show. We did do it on this show. One of our 10 out of 10s. No, we gave it a 9 because Jack Nicholson is so clearly crazy in it. Oh, that's right, because even at the beginning, he was very crazy. I did rewatch The Shining recently, and I'd probably crank it up to a 9.5. But it's no Congo. It's no Congo. I love that that movie is one of our 10 out of 10s. That's the bar. That is our bar. E the Congo bar. Every time. You gotta ask yourself, is this as believable as Congo? <laughs> it is funny because every time you ask me that, I really somehow do reframe the debate <laughs> in my head. I think one of the points in Congo was he might be having sex with the gorilla. <laughs> yeah, I know. But then it just is like, it reframes it in a way where I'm like, oh, right, this show is inherently silly. All right. So in addition to the acting nominations, this also got nominations for black and white cinematography and for best sound. And it won best picture, becoming the last black and white best picture winner until Schindler's List. I know. I read the two winners, like two black and white winners after. And it is kind of funny that it's Schindler's List and The Artist. Yeah. You know, just a, a trio of laugh riots. I mean, I mean, Roma should have been number four, but we got Green Book instead. Oh, God, I forgot about Green Book. <laughs> Every so often, you just remind me of these things, and I get so upset that I have to think Look, about Mark, them again. It, 
it's maybe our only best picture winner based on a true friendship. <sighs> that movie sucks. I was going to say it's our only best picture winner where someone folds a pizza in half and puts it in their mouth. But then I remembered that Bonnie and Clyde do that right before they die. Wait, Bonnie and Clyde did win best picture. Dang it. And it would have been funnier if I had said it happened in the heat of the night. Dang it. It just Rod Steiger sat in a car and folded a pizza. Oh my god, he did do that, didn't he? Well, Viggo Mortensen does, yeah. Oh no, doesn't that actually happen in the heat of the night? No. No! You think all movies where a a white guy goes around with a black guy, someone folds a pizza in half? No, I just think that in the heat of the night is a movie that that is potentially happening. It's a weirdly plausible idea. It's a weirdly plausible idea. But it was a bit early for pizza. Honestly. That's the thing. Have you ever read the old newspaper articles where they, like, explain what pizza is? Uh, yes. Like, from Victorian England. So funny. They're great. It's like this weird cake. The pizzeria is the one place in which the lords and the peasantry are equal. Everyone loves pizza. Uh, so the movie wins Best Picture, wins Best Director for Billy Wilder, Original Screenplay for Wilder and IAL Diamond, Black and White Art Direction, and Best Editing. It also wins the Golden Globe for Best Picture, for Best Actor in a Comedy, for Best Actress in a Comedy, the BAFTA for Best Film, the DGA Award, the WGA Award, and it placed 44th on the 2012 Sight and Sound Poll of Directors of the Best Film Ever, and 80th on the most recent AFI Top 100. Wow. Okay. So it's a a good movie. It's a very awarded movie. Yeah. Um, Speaking of, uh, Jack Lemmon did not win the Oscar for Best Actor. But Kevin Spacey did dedicate his American Beauty Oscar to Jack Lemmon's performance. Oh, God. I did read about that. Another person I did not want to think about ever again. I mean, that is fair. You know, in spite of the controversy around its scandalous content, the movie was a success. It made something like six and a half million dollars, which made it the eighth highest grossing film of 1960. Putting up some real COVID box office numbers there. Yeah. I mean... For a movie like this, it's kind of surprising how high up it is. Yeah, so the list is number one, Spartacus. Then there's a big gap, and it's number two, Psycho. Oh, I forgot this came. I never really put together that this was the same year as Psycho. It's, like, interesting to think about these movies being in theaters around the same time. It is, because they're both also, I would guess that they both played a role in the weakening of the Hayes Code in different ways. So number one, Spartacus. Number two, Psycho. Number three, Exodus. Number four, Disney's Swiss Family Robinson. Number five, a John Wayne movie called The Alamo, uh, directed by John Wayne. Can only imagine that that has a very sensitive depiction of Mexican people. Of the Mexican people. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Number six, The World of Susie Wong. Number seven, Butterfield 8. Number eight, The Apartment. Number nine, Ocean's Eleven. And number 10, From the Terrace. Wow. Wow. I don't know what that last movie is. I was going to comment on it, but I don't know what it is. Um, I also don't know anything about it, but uh, from Wikipedia, the plot of From the Terrace tells the story of the estranged son of a Pennsylvania factory owner who marries into a prestigious family and moves to New York to see his fortune. It is a romantic drama film. Uh, It stars Paul Newman and Joanne Woodward, who were married in real life. Oh, wow. Yeah, I don't know. Seems fine. A lot of people went to see it. I know. I'm just... It's interesting. It's crazy how many movies there are, which sounds weird to say, but it's true. 
I mean, we were talking about this on the Moonlight episode, right? About how film feels like the kind of thing where it should be possible to basically see everything. And then you learn about From the Terrace and you're like, I'm, I'm never going to get to that. Yeah, there's just too many. Ugh. All right. So should we start talking about the romance of this movie? Yeah, let's do it. It's mostly romance. It's a great movie. It's a good time. Watch The Apartment. Would recommend. But to guide our conversation of this movie, we will be breaking down the romantic plotline into five points. Will, I guess, I will take floor number one. Or I guess, Oh, this is floor. fun. Are you going to do a little, like, flourish as you push the elevator button? Yes, I guess. I'm not going to on camera, but audience, due to being an audio medium, you can imagine that I am. I like all the jokes in this about space travel, about, like, sometimes when she's, like, setting off the elevator, she uses, like, some space travel jokes. The fact that Fred McMurray's kids get, like, a rocket toy for Christmas. There's the joke where Jack Lemmon's landlady is complaining about the weather, and she's like, yeah, I bet it's all that Michigas down at Cape Canaveral that's causing this weather. That made me laugh so hard. Right. Because it is perfect as, like, you know, in this age of, like, covid conspiracies and stuff like that you're like oh yeah just like weird illogical conspiracy thinking because someone did science yeah that tracks all right so point one or as i'm calling it ground floor is the establishment of their relationship as we said he works for an insurance firm she is an elevator operator and he frequently gets in her elevator miss kubalik to ride to his floor and Often seems to find himself, huh, standing close to her on the elevator. Morning, Mr. Kirkland. Morning, Miss Kubelik. Morning, Mr. Jackson. Morning, Miss Kubelik. That's all. Take it away. Watch the door, please. Blasting off. What did you do to your hair? It was making me nervous, so I chopped it off. Big mistake, huh? No, I don't like it. You've got a lulu. Huh? Yeah, better not get too close. I never catch colds. Really? I was reading some figures from the Sickness and Actually Claims Division. Do you know that the average New Yorker between the ages of 20 and 50 has two and a half colds a year? Now that makes me feel just terrible. Why? Well, to make the figures come out even, if I have no colds a year, some poor slob must have five colds a year. Yeah, it's me. Should have stayed in bed this morning. I should have stayed in bed last night. Yeah, she mentions that he behaves better in the elevator than many people. Like, some men get a little saucier when they're in the elevator. We see a guy slap her on the ass at one point when he's coming out yeah but he is not like that he is much nicer yeah she says that he's the only one who takes off his hat in the elevator you know respecting it as a room yes and so he through his shenanigans is getting promoted and as a result okay this is gonna get complicated <laughs> just real quick so he gets recommended for promotion the boss calls him to his office the boss calls him out for doing this immoral thing of lending the key for a promotion basically is like i could call the vice squad on you you are basically running a brothel right but instead he says <laughs> give me the key to the apartment and i will promote you right he's like don't let anybody else do this anymore but i'm gonna do it all the time yes so he does, and to keep him out of the apartment for the night, Jack Lemon's given tickets to the Music Man. Yeah, he's going to go see the Music Man, which beat West Side Story for best musical at the Tonys. And gets in the elevator and invites Miss Kubelik Fran to join him at the Music Man. She says no to dinner, but eventually agrees to go to the show. Along the way, we should note this. 
Along the way, in the process of asking her, he reveals that he has looked up her insurance file at the insurance company they Oh my god, I forgot about this at. part. Yes, deeply stalkery. He knows everything about where she lives, who her family are. He knows her entire medical history. And she finds this charming? Yeah, red flag. And at the time, I think it is possible to read that scene as her being like, yeah, that's nice. Uh, I really will not go on a date with you. It's alarming. <laughs> it's alarming. And honestly, she should be more weirded out. And she does seem, the way it's played in the movie is that she finds it charming. Yes, it is. But for him, like, this is a great option, right? He's going to see the music man. He's going to take out the pretty elevator operator. You know, the night before, he spent the night in the rain after spending his evening watching the longest ever TCM-style intro to a movie. Oh my god, yes. It's so funny as he's watching it, and the guy just keeps listing all the actors and keeps introducing a new sponsor. And Jack Lemmon just keeps flipping over to watch Stagecoach, which he clearly hates, so he keeps flipping back. Uh, this movie has good jokes. Every time it cuts back to Stagecoach, I laughed. So asking her out is actually point two, which is going up. Oh, Miss Kubelik? I've been waiting for you. I almost didn't recognize you. This is the first time I've ever seen you in civilian clothes. Uh, How'd everything go on the 27th floor? Oh, you're great. Look, have you seen the music man? No. Would you like to? Sure. I thought maybe we'd get a bite to eat first, and then we go. Oh, you mean tonight? Yeah. I'm sorry, I can't. I'm meeting somebody. Oh. You mean, like a, a girlfriend? No, like a man. I wasn't trying to be personal. It's just the fellas in the office. They were wondering about you, you know, if you ever... You tell them now and then. This date, is it uh, just a date or is it something serious? Well, it used to be serious. At least I was, but he wasn't. So now the whole thing's more or less kaput. Well, in that case, couldn't you? No, I'm afraid not. I promised I'd have a drink with him. He's been calling me all week. So they're going up in the elevator. He asks her out and he is on top of the world. And she has also been like a friendly face who like provides him encouragement when he thinks he's going up to get promoted, for example. Right. But this brings us to point three, which is going down, where we then cut to Fran at dinner with his boss. Right. So she had agreed to go with him to the music man. She had waffled originally because she's like, ah, I have somewhere somewhere else I need to go. I have an engagement. And he convinces her like, hey, you know, this is going to be really fun. And she says, okay, you know what? This is a guy that I used to have a thing with. He wants it to be back. I don't really want it to be back. So I'll basically show up to be polite, and then I'll beg off, and I'll meet you at the theater. And I do appreciate here where, at this point, because we know that Fred McMurray, uh, Mr. Sheldrake, has gotten the keys to the apartment, that clearly he's the person that she's meeting. I appreciate that the movie doesn't drag out that reveal. Like, the next scene, after she makes that agreement, is her going into the Chinese restaurant, and there's Fred McMurray. Look, Jeff, we had two wonderful months this summer, but that was it. Happens all the time. Wife and kids go away to the country and the boss has a fling with the secretary or the manicurist or the elevator girl. Come September, the picnic's over. Goodbye. The kids go back to school. The boss goes back to the wife. And the girl? They don't make me shrimp like they used to. I never said goodbye, Fran. For a while there, you try kidding yourself that you're going with an unmarried man. Then one day, he keeps looking at his watch and asks you if there's any lipstick showing and rushes out to catch the 714 to White Plains. So you fix yourself a cup of instant coffee 
and you sit there by yourself and you think. And it all begins to look so ugly. Right. It was very nice that it wasn't, you know, it just happens. The movie understood that the audience was on the right page. Yes. And so they are at dinner and it's made clear that they broke up because his wife was back in town after a summer fling. But now he is begging to get back with her. And she's like, I don't want to be strung along. Right. And then he basically says, a classic, I will leave my wife for you. <laughs> sure. And then... <laughs> sure. Well, the thing that clinches it is he's like, I love you. Don't you hear me? I love you, dang it! Yes. And so he... <laughs> Gross. Um. So then <laughs> she does agree to go back to the apartment with him. And poor Jack Lemon is standing outside in the rain again, I think, of the music man. Yep. And it seems like he doesn't even go in. Like, guy should have gone to see the show. Yeah, I, he should have gone in. But he didn't want to miss her, I guess. He's never gonna He's never gonna know how many trombones are in the big parade. Um, I would guess 40 at most. And so, to make matters worse, we are continuing to go down. That night, he goes home. They continue to... Does he figure... I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the plot. Does he figure out that night that she's with him? No, he doesn't. He no. just knows that he was stood up. And that he knows that she was with some guy. Yes. But he doesn't know that it's Sheldrake. Right. So, like, that's that. We then cut to the day of the Christmas party at work. And when he goes to the elevator, he sees her there. He brings her a drink. And that's when we learn that it has been six weeks since she stood him up. She's like, oh, yeah, I thought you were avoiding me. You've only been in my elevator once since then. And you didn't even take off your hat. Right. Okay. But that's where he then is like, oh, like, she's like, yeah, you couldn't possibly forgive me. He immediately says, I forgive you. Well, as a matter of fact, I was rather hurt that night you stood me up. I don't blame you. It was unforgivable. I forgive you. Well, you shouldn't. You couldn't help yourself. I mean, when you're having a drink with one man, you can't suddenly walk out on him because you're having another date with another man. You did the only decent thing. I wouldn't be too sure. Just because I wear a uniform, that doesn't make me a drill scout. Miss Kublik, one doesn't get to be a second administrative assistant around here unless he's a pretty good judge of character. And as far as I'm concerned, your tops, I mean, decency-wise and otherwise-wise. <laughs> Cheers. But he does figure it out at this point by she hands him her mirror. And she had left her mirror behind in his apartment. He returns it to his boss, notices there's a crack in it. She hands it to Jack Lemon. Jack Lemon sees the crack and is just like oh shit and he knows exactly what's going on right so that's when he figures it out it's at this christmas party where once again he had been kind of successfully asking her out like enticing her to the party been like hey let's go out and have a good time i've got this great new hat and so that night he you know well the other big thing that happens at the christmas party is sheldrake's secretary pulls shirley mclean aside and walks her through oh, his yes. long history of banging his way through the young women of the office. And promising to leave his wife for them. And never doing it. So then she goes back to the apartment with the boss, Fred McMurray. Basically is like, I need you to commit to leaving your wife. Why haven't you done it yet? And he's just like, no, no, I will. I promise. I love you. Blah, blah, blah. He's like, Christmas is just a bad time. My kids are home. The family's around. There's a lot going on. But we also know it has been six weeks and apparently no movement. And this is where he starts being like, you have to understand, when you've been married to someone for 12 years, you can't just say it one morning. You've got to build up to it. Yeah, it's awful. I think, like, what works so well is that he is such a piece of crap 
that you don't fully process how like sort of passively terrible Baxter is, Jack Lemon, because you have this like much more glaring sort of vile behavior that it's not until he's kind of out of the picture for Christmas that you're like, wow, like Jack Lemon has set up all of this to happen. Yeah, you do like because all the other men are so terrible, the terribleness that Jack Lemon does have is, you know, honestly easy to ignore. Especially because in the first act of the movie, he is like a comic victim of all of this behavior. Like he's getting strong armed into giving up his apartment. He's like sleeping out in the cold. And it's not until all those guys are out of the way and you just see him like putting all of this pressure on Shirley MacLaine. Like, oh, you should give him another chance. Oh, you should talk to him. Oh, we should cover up, you know, this medical emergency that you're like, oh, he is like the agent that makes all of this happen. Yeah. And so that night after the boss leaves to go back to his wife, she takes a bunch of sleeping pills in an attempt to take her own life. And she doesn't leave a note, but she does leave her Christmas gift in an envelope because she picked out a record of the musician who plays at the Chinese restaurant they always went to and and gives it to Fred McMurray. And he gives her in an envelope a $100 bill. Actually, he doesn't even put it in an envelope. He just hands her the bill. I know. It's awful. It's disgusting. He's like, I didn't know what to get you, but there are some nice bags at the store. It's so gross. (laughs) It's so gross. And so as you say, she... uh, she takes a bunch of sleeping pills and leaves the bill in an envelope. So this takes us to point four, which is the sub-basement, where she <laughs> is, you know, he comes home with a woman he picked up while drunk at a bar who's cheating on her husband. Well, her husband's been imprisoned by Castro for doping a horse. Which, I mean, like, you know, fair, but it is still adultery happening in the apartment. <laughs> Yes, I do love that she introduces that piece of information by asking him in the bar, what do you think of Castro? (laughs) You know, the guy down there with the beard. Yeah, it's so weird. That whole conversation is weird. It's 1960. That's a curiosity to Americans. There's been no Bay of Pigs. Yeah, true enough. Okay, so then he comes home, finds her asleep, is unable to wake her up, and gets the doctor to come, you know, take care of her. Yeah, there's a doctor who lives next door who has made a bunch of jokes before. Mm. Some complaints about the noise from his apartment. Yeah. The sex noise and the music noise. And has made some jokes about like, wow, man, you must have like some incredible stamina. (laughs) Please donate your body to science. Oh, that was funny. I forgot about that line. But then, yeah, when Jack Lemmon finds Shirley MacLaine passed out, he gets the doctor. And this is where, again, Lemmon just keeps covering up these terrible dudes and so he's insisting like rather than admit what's been going on with the apartment he's just passes this off as like yeah you know love them and leave them these ladies they just uh they get so committed after nothing and then they here they are killing themselves yeah he's so gross it's so they get her awake and that she has to stay in his apartment to rest because if she falls asleep she might not wake up again and so there's this like interesting balance taking place in this whole window where There are some really lovely moments of them together, of, like, him taking care of her, like, helping her stay up by playing uh, gin rummy with her. But there's also just the, like, unpleasantness of the fact that, like, he keeps pressuring her, like, oh, why don't you get on the phone with Sheldrake? Why don't you just go back to the way things were? It seems like that's all pretty nice. Because he's getting pressure from Sheldrake. Right. Yeah, he tried, he called Sheldrake and tried to get him to come and see her and be there when she woke up. And he's like, no, no, you can't do that, obviously. I'm counting on you. You'll take care of this, Baxter. Mm -hmm. 
So there are some lovely moments. I love watching him strain the spaghetti with his tennis racket. Yes. And they have fun. He convinces her to play gin rummy with him. She does warn him that she is terrible. And yes, she's not really paying attention. It is funny. I do not know how this game works. But he is clearly wiping the floor with her. Oh, yeah. No, she really doesn't know what's going on. So they're getting to know each other a little bit better. But it is in this like weird medium space, like the space between Christmas and New Year's where Mm -hmm. it's not clear how much of any of this is flirtatious. It's not clear how much of it should be. It's not clear what her status is with Sheldrake, although seems like she's pretty much done with him. Well, I mean, finally, as she should be. Yeah. So then this kind of brings us to the brother-in-law showing up. Right. So the the one catch to all of this is that Lemon and McMurray together have been stopping anyone really from knowing where she is because they don't want her suicide attempt to be reported in the press or to the police. Mm-hmm. And and so they which, also have not let also, her call home. Why would this? Why would this hit the press? Like, how important is this guy? Right. Even with McMurray, like, how famous is he? Yeah. So then, eventually, she's gone missing. Her brother-in-law, who she lives with, and her sister shows up at the office. Asks around, figures out where she is, shows up at the apartment. Punches Jack Lemon in the face for real because Jack Lemon messed up his choreography. Which is kind of funny because it is a bit of a, like, the punch doesn't look that good. So it is funny that it is real. And you can tell if you're looking for it. You can tell that he really gets hit in the face. Yeah. It's also an interesting scene because the doc, Dr. Dreyfus is there or is around when it's going on and is actively cheering for Jack Levin to get punched in the face because he's like, yeah, you've been terrible to this girl based on the lies that, I that told. he's responsible for what's going on, not Sheldrake. But on the other hand, like, he has been terrible to this girl, and so it is okay to see him get punched in the face. Yeah. But then what also goes on is Sheldrake goes looking for her because his secretary, who told Shirley MacLaine about his whole sexual past he fired the secretary she then told his wife which i mean kicked him out fair enough not very smart of him no it's not so his wife kicked him out so he's like look i'm now separated from my wife so shirley mclean let's go which gross but like then it goes back to yeah it just goes back to kind of how it was before status quo yeah where she seems to be back with sheldrake jack lemon is alone and the one, like, little victory he gets is Sheldrake comes to him and asks him to give him the key over again because he's staying in a men's-only hotel for the moment and he wants to have sex with Shirley MacLaine for New Year's and instead Jack Lemon quits. Good for him. He's yeah, good for him. Gonna be a mensch. He's gonna be a mensch and he decides that he is also going to move out of his apartment, which makes sense because people would keep badgering him about it. Yeah. You just know someone would show up unannounced. Oh, for sure. So he then, this brings us to point five, kind of, which is reaching the penthouse. Sheldrake and Fran are at a New Year's party. And what does he say? Oh, he has to get a hotel that's like far away or something. Do you remember what was wrong with the hotel? Yeah, well, it's he doesn't want anything getting out about like, hazy timeline stuff before his divorce is finalized so they are going to like some anonymous hotel and eventually she's just like screw this she's like i'm not going like another set of rounds another delay yeah 
and then another long game of this. She finally gives up on Sheldrake and returns to the apartment. And as she's coming up, you hear this sound that you think is a gunshot. Turns out uh, to be a bottle of champagne. He's popped a bottle of champagne for himself for New Year's Eve. And it's such a lovely, muted close because his apartment's all packed up. She pulls out the cards to resume the game of gin rummy. And it doesn't end with like a, a bunch of kissing, even really a proposal, although you do kind of have the sense that they're going to get married, it being mm-hmm. 1960 and they like each other. Yeah, there's not a lot of other options. But like the fact that it just ends with her taking off her coat as she sits on the couch. Where are you going? Well, who knows? Another neighborhood, another town, another job. I'm on my own. That's funny. So am I. What'd you do with the cards? In there. What about Mr. Sheldrake? We send him a fruitcake every Christmas. I love you, Miss Kubley. Three. Queen. Did you hear what I said, Miss Kubelik? I absolutely adore you. Shut up and deal. Mm-hmm. And it's he like says, I love small... you. But she does yes, not say that. And she doesn't say it back. Back, which was kind of He sad. says, I love you. She takes off her coat. Mm-hmm. Just like, I'm staying. And she starts dealing. It's a really lovely ending. It is very nice. But do you find it believable? I mean, that's the question. So I find I find the movie largely uh, funny and sweet, even with its unpleasantness. I like that it manages to balance all of that. I think it's impressive. My challenge is, I don't know that as she's saying goodbye to all things Sheldrake, she would go back to somebody who was so involved in all of that. Mm-hmm. And, and I also think it's creepy. really stalkery that he had all that insurance stuff. Yeah, that's my main hang-up, more than anything, honestly. Right, like, that feels like immediate deal-breaker. Yeah, gross. He just seems like, as much as he is, like, a cutie pie, you're like, I don't know, this guy is willing to do a lot of shady things. He's willing to do a lot of shady things, and he's also willing to live like an animal. (laughs) His life is not sustainable. No. So, on a scale of 0 to 10, where 0 means you believe none of it, 10 means you believe all of it, where would you put the apartment? It is tough. I think I would give this, like, a honestly, like, a 6, probably. I was going to give it a 4. Really? Yeah. I'm just adding in the fact that it's 1960, and he took his hat off in the elevator, which back then would probably be a lot. Yeah, and he did, like put a lot, like, show her a lot of care. Mm-hmm. Maybe, I can go to a five. You keep your six. I'm happy for you. Okay. Uh, do you think any of these people are dateable? So, Fran, Shirley MacLaine, is the strongest option. Yes. She's a fun time. I like it when she sticks up for herself. Definitely would date her. Yeah. My biggest concern is that she was, like, willing to go along with him in any way. Right, but, you know, there's also, like, a big power imbalance, and she's, like, a newish to the city. She has a string of bad relationships. Yeah, that's fair. I'll cut her some slack. She, had, she was dating one executive at a company in Pittsburgh 
who asked her to wait for him when he went away for five years for embezzling money. Which is funny. It is. You know, I wish Jack Lemmon's character were the kind of guy I would want to date, but again, he is quietly very scummy. Yeah. So, so that's, but if that's you a no did have me. to if you did have to pick one person, who would you choose? It's gotta be Dr. Dreyfus, right? Yeah, it's Dr. Dreyfus. Or Mrs. Dreyfus. But I think yeah. it's the doctor. He's just a little more affable, and I, I think his party sounded like a good time. Uh, but do you think that they will stay together? I know I skipped this before. From it's change right. the order. Um, yeah, I do think they'll stay together. Yeah, I think so. It just, it feels like this is a good situation for both of them. I think it will work out, and I hope that they move far away from this apartment. Yeah, they need to, they need to get to, like, Brooklyn, Long Island. Somewhere. Seattle. Yeah, they need a change of pace. Well, he quit his job. They could just move. That's the thing. Yeah, they, this is a great time for them to start up again. Mm-hmm. Now, Mark. Yes. Should the film The Apartment, great Billy Wilder comedy, should it be adapted into a stage musical? Hmm. I think no. Maybe? Hmm. I don't know. I'm kind of on the fence. I think it could be a good play, but I'm not sure. Well, if you'd like, you can find out. Because not many years later, something like 1966, the apartment was adapted into the musical Promises, Promises with huh. a book by Neil Simon. Okay. And music by Burt Bacharach and lyrics by Hal David. Oh, wow. And Jerry Orbach won the Tony for Best Actor in a Musical for playing the Jack Lemmon part. Really? That's crazy. Yeah. Okay. Well, now I want to see it. I could not find the original cast album, which does exist, but I couldn't find it on Spotify. There is a much more recent, like, revival album with Sean Hayes and Kristen Chenoweth. That sounds also interesting. I listened to some of it, and it really sounds like a musical from the period where Sondheim hasn't quite hit yet. Ah, yep. Got it. But it's out there. But it's out there. All right. I think that is it for The Apartment. This was a great inclusion in our Christmas coverage. It was, because it was we're like building up towards Christmas, because next week we're hitting our Christmasiest yet. Yes. Um we couldn't we couldn't not do something bad with Christmas. We had to do something. So next week, it's gonna happen. Santa Claus is gonna conquer the Martians. I feel like we've been threatening this for years, and it is happening. Yeah, so we're watching the film Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. It is in the public domain. You can watch it anywhere. You can watch it on Prime Video. You can watch it on Tubi. You can watch it on YouTube. You can watch it on Wikipedia. Santa Claus Conquers the Martians. Oh my god. But until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts to help other people find the show. All right, last question. What is the best piece of dating advice we got from the apartment? Hats are a good way to flirt. When he pulls her into his office during the Christmas party, he's like, hey, I want to show you this. I just bought it. I haven't decided if I can pull it off. Here's this nice hat. I think it's kind of a goofy hat. Do I look okay? Does it look better if I tilt it some? Hats are a great way to flirt. Trying out goofy hats. Trying out cool hats. Doesn't matter. They're a good tool. My advice is don't be the guy on the elevator that pinches strangers' butts. I mean, that is very good advice. And that guy does not get with Shirley MacLaine. 
and he does not get with Shirley MacLaine. So, that's it. All right. <laughs> Until next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Bye. There's a man, the kind of man you would like if you were just...